Hello and welcome to the EMG Gold Podcast. It's Sam Boyassi here and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Sarah Rickwood from IQVIA. Welcome, Sarah. Great to have you on. Thank you for inviting me. Hello, everybody. I'd love to give our listeners some background on you before I get going, Sarah, just so they know about your impressive background, so to say, know exactly who we're speaking with here. Um, but for those of you who don't know, Sarah is the Vice President of Thought Leadership and Marketing at IQVIA. With a degree in biochemistry from the University of Oxford, she started out her career in healthcare research at Accenture before joining IMS Health, now known as IQVIA. There, she's climbed the ranks to the position she currently holds as Vice President of Thought Leadership and Marketing. Having closely observed and studied the evolution of the healthcare and pharma industry, Sarah is well informed in key areas like clinical research, marketing, biosimilars and information technology. We'd be hard-pressed to find a guest better place to comment on the trends and challenges in the healthcare industry at the moment. So thanks again for joining us, Sarah. The first question that I'd like to get into is, as someone who has held numerous thought leadership positions at both IMS Health and IQVIA, what qualities do you believe are fundamental for a thought leader, so to say? Okay, well, it's a great question. I suppose I better start by saying, that um, when you announce to people that you are a thought leader, they do tend to look at you slightly oddly. Um, and I understand <laughs> why, because um, it's a pretty exotic um, job title. I'm, I'm definitely a um, specialist um, here. But in the end, what thought leadership is doing um, sounds exotic, but is actually quite simple. Um, we're just here um, having a position which enables us to look at the um, big trends in the industry that we cover and research those trends and then go out and talk to people um, about it. As such, it's a really fabulous um, job to have. Um, I think that the number one um, thing that you need to have um, to really um, do this job is, of course, an intense interest in the industry that you're covering. Um, and I've worked um, studying the pharmaceutical industry um, since 1992 um, and never been bored during that time. Um, so having um, an industry that you love, are deeply interested in and want to build um, a great expertise in, I think is the first prerequisite um, for a thought leader. Absolutely fantastic, because yes, I have to admit, I have never spoken to anyone with such an amazing job title. I remember when I first came across you, Sarah, thinking, I do have to find out what that's all about, because as you said, it is very exotic and very different. So thank you for that. Um, when you look back at the past decade, what would you say are the key trends and challenges that have shaped the past 10 years within the pharmaceutical industry in particular? That's very interesting, because um, there are some big themes um, of the 2010s, and um, they're well worth studying for the pharmaceutical industry because actually um, they're going to give birth to what's going to shape um, the 2020s. And um, in many cases, those um, themes were visible even at the start of the 2010s. Of course, uh, more recently in the um, first quarter of this um, new decade, We've seen um, a huge black swan event happen to the market, um, and that will have its own ramifications. We'll talk about that um, in a minute. Uh, but I don't think it will um, change fundamentally um, some of the um, big drivers that had their origin in the 2010s, um, but are going to see play out during the 2020s. 
I suppose the first harbinger of what was to come in the M2010s happened right at the beginning um, of that decade, um, and that was um, that hypertension, which had been the world's most valuable therapy area, this huge mass market primary care therapy area, was pushed off the top spot as the world's most valuable therapy area by cancer, oncology. Um, that happened at the beginning of 2010. Um, and since then, oncology um, has grown um, in terms of value um, faster than the global prescription medicine market and ended the decade as the world's largest therapy area still. Um, and I will confidently predict that oncology will continue to be the world's most valuable therapy area um, throughout the 2020s as well. But oncology is also essentially um, the leading edge of a broader um, change in the prescription medicine market, which was the shift of where value growth was being driven um, to specialty products. So cancer products are one example of specialty products, but specialty products also include autoimmune products, many hospital products, all rare disease products, um, and many other areas. Um, and this part of the market as a whole grew faster than the world market um, during the 2010s. And whilst it's not um, the majority of value yet, um, and it's by no means the majority of volume, it is the majority of value growth. Um, and that means that we enter the 2020s um, with a market where innovation and most of the world's top 20 pharmaceutical companies are very focused on the specialty part um, of the global market. And that has implications um, for the type of products that we develop and also the type of competition um, that is seen um, between companies and indeed the types of companies that can compete um, in the global prescription medicine market. Very fascinating. Some of the things you mentioned that I'm really keen to explore a bit further later on. Um, but first, I'd be really, really interested in understanding um, about your research into the global uptake and impact of multi-channel marketing in particular. What do you think are some of your, I guess, your standout observations from that research? Well, the interesting thing about uh, multi-channel um, is that it developed over the 2010s um, and now during the COVID-19 crisis, it is probably going to see um, a sort of step change. The COVID-19 crisis may be a catalyst in the further development of multi-channel market. Just to be clear, so we're all on the page about what we're talking about um, here, uh, multi-channel marketing is the ability of pharmaceutical companies to choose between a range of channels, which could be both face-to-face -face and remote. And within remote, they could be more traditional approaches to communicating with healthcare professionals, like, for example, um, mail, uh, or they could be new digital channels. And it was really the rise of digital channels, um, that is the ability to do e-meetings, e-details, that drove the term multi-channel. So it really meant that um, whilst at the beginning of the 2010s, really um, pharmaceutical company engagement with healthcare professionals was led by that one thing, which was the rep in the office with the doctor face to face, um, 
over the decade, more and more options in terms of ways to engage um, with um, healthcare professionals were created um, and taken up. Um, and with that, pharmaceutical companies started to have options and also healthcare professionals had options as well, because healthcare professionals have preferences about the way that they want to be engaged with by pharmaceutical um, companies. What we saw was it wasn't a switch that was flipped instantly. The fact of the matter is promotional environments in different countries um, are quite unique to that country. They vary quite a bit between countries. Um, there are, of course, um, countries like the US, um, and it's um, mainly the US um, where you have the opportunity to communicate directly to consumers, to patients um, through advertising, and you do not have that channel in other markets. So the speed at which multi-channel became um, important across countries um, was quite variable. And it's fair to say um, that Japan and the US um, were leaders as far as the uptake of digital promotional activity particularly, and Europe um, was um, more of a laggard, although Europe, of course, is a collection of countries, and actually within Europe there was considerable variation as well. When we come to the COVID-19 crisis, immediately face-to-face -face engagement between pharmaceutical companies um, and healthcare professionals um, fell um, dramatically across countries. And of course, uh, in the crisis period, um, that was as it should be because healthcare professionals and healthcare systems um, um, did not need to have people moving between doctors and hospitals um, acting as possible sources um, of infection. And pharma responded by ceasing those activities. But there was still a need and a desire on doctors' parts, which we validated using promotional, not promotional, primary research. Um, There's still a, a demand from healthcare professionals to actually um, engage with pharmaceutical companies and to get information and support from pharmaceutical companies. And what we saw was within the context of the overall volume of um, contacts going down, what contacts there were shifted dramatically to remote engagement. Um, that remote engagement could be traditional types of engagement. It could be a telephone call. Um, in some cases, it was even a WhatsApp message or it could be um, mail but also there was a rise in um, digital forms of engagement as well. And sometimes we saw the highest rise in these remote engagements in countries where the promotional environment had really still, even in um, the end of 2019, been very traditional. It had been about the rep in the office with the doctor. If we think about Italy, uh, that was the majority um, of um, promotional activity at the end of um, 2019. Um, but the COVID-19 crisis took away the ability to engage face-to-face, -face, but it didn't take away the need that healthcare professionals had um, to engage with pharmaceutical companies. And although the volume of engagements was down, um, the nature of those engagements shifted dramatically to remote. Um, now the question is, 
will it shift back or not? Um, research, not pharmaceutical industry research, but um, research um, into psychology suggests that um, on average, you need to do something differently for two months um, for that habit um, to stick. And of course, in most countries, um, lockdown hasn't been at least two months. So will doctors want to stick with the new habits they've acquired of engaging with pharmaceutical companies um, remotely? Um, or will they eventually drift back um, to the kind of engagement they saw previously? Um, my view is that this will be a step change um, for multi-channel. Um, the number of volume of contacts will rise again um, as um, healthcare systems um, start to see a new steady state in terms of um, operation. But the proportion of those contacts that are remote contacts uh, is probably going to be higher brilliant. The way that you summarised that was just incredible. And I've always been quite fascinated with, especially the way that things differ from region to region. But um, with, of course, the current crisis that we're going through, I'm really, really interested to see what the shift will be and if that shift will take place, so to say. Um, and quite interesting about your observations around how it will take two months for habits and these new ways of doing things can you know, form. So that's certainly something to keep an eye on. I'd be really, really interested to hear your thoughts on real-world evidence, Sarah. Do you think pharma is doing enough to fully recognise the potential of real-world evidence across both clinical and commercial areas? And if so, I'd be really interested to understand why you think that. So I think that the 2010s, again, um, as far as real-world evidence, um, were a decade when the value of real-world evidence started to be um, fully realised. And it moved from a nice-to-have um, to a must-have um, in terms of um, planning your launch strategy for your product and, indeed, um, your lifecycle development strategy um, for your product. And there's a, a range of reasons um, for that. Of course, real-world evidence largely started out in um, terms of understanding um, safety for the um, post-approval um, marketed um, product, but real-world evidence nowadays is much, much more um, than that. One of the trends that we have seen, and this is linked to that trend towards specialty products being approved that I discussed earlier, um, is that in certain areas, um, and it's only certain areas, where you have patients with few or no treatment options um, in life-limiting um, situations, and that's particularly in cancer, um, but is also in rare diseases. Um, we see the FDA and the EMA regulators more willing um, to approve these types of products on less mature um, data. Um, and that's wonderful for patients um, and their carers and doctors because it means um, that those patients get those products earlier. However, it is less mature data. Um, and payers who have to allocate budgets and decide where best to um, put spend have challenges with that because um, in some cases they feel um, that it is difficult um, to make spending decisions on the data that products um, are approved on. So there's a gap. Um, between what the um, regulators are prepared um, to approve on um, and what payers 
um, are prepared to allocate budget um, based on. And that gap uh, is increasingly um, addressed using um, real-world data, um, following products um, post-approval to um, understand um, the true value and impact um, of the product. So that's one um, developing aspect of real-world evidence. But it's actually much more than that. Um, a colleague of mine, Marcus Gores, who works in my team, looked at three um, therapy areas which are particularly competitive therapy areas. So these were um, the immuno-oncologics, so those are cancer um, drugs, so think um, Optivo and Keytruda, for example, um, autoimmune areas, so some of the autoimmune biologics um, that have recently been launched, particularly in areas such as psoriasis, but he looked across indications, um, and then diabetes. So all of these areas have lots of brands. Um, they're on patent brands. It's extremely competitive, um, and they are areas where, of course, both doctors um, and payers expect to see um, proof um, of effective outcomes. Uh, what Marcus did was he um, looked at the volume of real-world evidence publications um, by product um, using literature searches and um, categorized those real-world evidence publications into the different types of real-world evidence study that you have, um, but also benchmarked those studies in terms of normalizing for the length of time um, that products have been on the market, because obviously something that's been on the market 10 years is going to have more opportunity to have lots of RWE studies published than something that's been on the market for one year. Um, and also the number of indications that product had, because in immuno-oncology and in autoimmune particularly, we're talking about very multi-indicational products. And again, something that's got 10 indications, which is what an immuno-oncology product might have, is likely to have more real-world evidence studies than something that has one. So do all that um, and normalize the number of years on the market and the number of indications, um, and then look at how commercially successful those products um, were. What you find is really interesting. Um, it's that the most commercially successful products, what we call excellent in launch terms, are also the products with the highest level of real-world evidence productivity. So we're not saying real-world evidence productivity drives commercial excellence. I mean, that's definitely not the case because um, what makes a launch commercially excellent is really complex and really multifactorial. But it's definitely associated, and we think this is the first time um, that anybody's really shown that not only is real-world evidence a must-have to demonstrate safety outcomes, um, to have the right conversations um, with payers, um, but it's also differentiating and commercially strategically important as well. Um, and we think that's going to be something that's really interesting um, throughout the 2020s because it demonstrates um, that real-world evidence is going to be truly important um, for the next decade as well. Absolutely. I'd be really keen to get back to what we discussed earlier, especially around COVID-19. And you talked about the impact that that may have on multi-channel marketing. How do you think COVID-19 might have an impact uh, on the future landscape of drug launch? That's an interesting question. I think that um, clearly 
um, during the crisis period that has occurred um, across the major markets. It has not been a normal time at all um, for prescription medicine launch. First, I'd just reflect that um, seven countries, that's the US, top five Europe and Japan, if you look at new active substances, so those are the innovative products that were launched during the 2010s, then those seven countries are typically 86% of the um, first five years worth of launch sales of those um, last decade new active substances. Um, and that's taking into account that you might have later launches in some countries than you did um, in other countries. So these are the markets that really matter. And of course, these markets have been hit um, very heavily by the COVID-19 crisis and, of course, are still being hit um, heavily by the COVID-19 crisis. And that will play out um, through the rest of 2020. Uh, so this is not a usual time um, to launch products. Some launches have gone ahead um, during the crisis, and that's right for those launches. Um, because what each company has to do um, is look at their particular launch um, and its circumstances and ask the question, um, are patients going to be harmed more if um, they have to go into healthcare facilities, potentially expose themselves to the risk of COVID-19 infection, but get this new product? Um, or should they wait for the product and um, isolate at home. And that can only be really answered on a um, product by product basis, because if you're talking about a um, new cancer product um, that significantly extends life um, in a um, therapy area where they're in a, in a tumor rather, where there is um, currently no effective um, product, um, then the answer may well be bring them in, um, let them use the product. And if you're talking about the fourth or fifth um, agent um, in a well-established um, therapy area um, where it's nice to have a new product um, but um, patients can wait, um, then you may make another um, decision. And we're seeing that um, happen. Some companies have, after their product's been approved, opted um, to delay. Um, other companies have, after their product's been approved, opted um, to go ahead, although, of course, they're doing so with a very different kind of launch um, to the launch that they would have done if COVID-19 um, had not happened. But eventually, we're going to get back to a steady state um, where all launches are possible. And in that launch environment, we're going to see that companies are um, operating in a very different kind of environment. They will have to review every single aspect of their launch planning if they made those launch plans in the pre-COVID-19 era and asked themselves at each step, is this plan still fit for purpose? And that will include their plans for medical affairs, their real-world evidence strategy, um, their launch promotional strategy, including, of course, the um, multi-channel mix um, within that, um, their payer and market access strategy, um, their support and patient engagement strategy, um, and indeed possibly their manufacturing and supply strategy um, as well. So it is huge um, for launch because, of course, um, the COVID-19 pandemic 
has so comprehensively affected every single aspect of our lives and our healthcare system. Well, on that note, Sarah, what do you think we can learn from countries that are more ahead in the curve of COVID-19? So very early on in the um, COVID-19 crisis, Sykuvia, China, um, started to understand the impact that um, the crisis was having on um, the Chinese um, healthcare system and the Chinese um, pharmaceutical market. And of course, um, China has um, come out of the crisis earliest. Um, and so in some ways, it is quite useful um, to look carefully at that market um, and start to understand what signals might be coming out of that market that you could apply forward. But I think it has to come with um, a, a certain um, health warning because each healthcare system um, is quite different. The Chinese healthcare system is very different to the healthcare systems of um, Europe and the US, um, for example. And also each country's COVID-19 crisis, um, as we know, um, has been pretty different with some countries um, being much more successful at um, containing infection um, than others have been. Um, so you need to be cautious um, in that respect. Um, however, um, what we have seen um, using our um, channel dynamics um, audit is that the volume of contacts between healthcare professionals and um, pharma has started to rise um, once more after, of course, a significant um, dip. Um, at the moment, and we're tracking this closely, um, we see that um, the mix is quite different to the mix that we saw um, pre the COVID-19 crisis. The big question there, of course, is whether we will see um, a continued change in mix with a much higher level of remote engagements going forward. Very good. I was just going to ask you, how do you think we can, we can best support healthcare professionals and the government perhaps to mitigate the impact of the virus as an industry? That's a great question. And I think that one that all pharmaceutical companies um, should be asking to the healthcare professionals that um, they work with. Uh, we've done a number of primary research surveys, and those are available on um, the IQVIA website or else um, through other IQVIA resources. Um, and one of the things that comes out um, of some of those surveys um, is that um, healthcare professionals, as a majority, do want to continue to engage with pharmaceutical companies um, through the crisis. Clearly, they're very pragmatic about what they want to engage on. Uh, at the height of the crisis, um, they were looking for very specific information and support related to the management of COVID-19. But they're also looking forward because healthcare professionals also expect that they will see quite different healthcare systems um, for the rest of 2020 and beyond. And what they expect is that healthcare systems will be more remote. That is, they will be uh, managing their patients more remotely than they did before um, because they will need to both to protect their patients and in some cases um, even to protect um, themselves. And that's new territory 
um, for many doctors um, and many patients. Um, we've seen a rise in telemedicine in uh, many countries, but of course, it's off a pretty small base. If this continues, then there are many patients and doctors who will be having to learn new approaches um, to managing their disease and indeed supporting patients in managing their disease. And the um, doctors and patients themselves will need um, support, which in some cases may come from healthcare systems, but healthcare systems are going to be um, stretched for some period of time, um, continuing to deal with the longer term consequences of the pandemic crisis. Um, and I expect, um, and indeed our primary research backs this up, um, the doctors will be looking to pharmaceutical companies um, to provide some of that support in helping them manage their patients in a changed healthcare environment, which is a more remote healthcare environment. Fascinating. Brilliant. Thank you, Sarah. I've got one more question for you. And I always like to finish these interviews with, with something to look forward to. Although I have to admit, a lot of the answers that you've given are very forward looking. So thank you so much for that. But when you think about the future of the pharmaceutical industry, Sarah, what are you most excited or optimistic about? I think the thing that excites me most is what has always excited me about the pharmaceutical industry, which is it has a relentless capacity um, for innovation. Um, and that innovation just keeps going despite um, setbacks and challenges um, and unexpected um, events. If you think about it, um, you know, bringing a medicine um, that is um, approved, effective and extraordinarily unlikely event because um, in the preclinical stage, discovery stage, there are huge numbers of compounds um, which over a period of a decade are whittled down and down and products that looked highly promising prove after um, clinical development um, not to be effective. Um, you have to be both um, relentlessly innovative um, and also relentlessly optimistic to be a pharmaceutical um, industry player. So in that sense, um, appalling though the COVID-19 um, pandemic is, it um, brings out one of the best aspects, I think, of the um, global prescription medicines um, industry, um, which is um, that they will um, respond to a challenge um, with innovation. We saw that uh, with HIV, um, we saw that um, with hepatitis C. Um, we will see that um, with COVID-19. Beyond that, I was already excited about the prospects of the um, 2020s because another thing that started um, in um, the 2010s was the nature of what was being launched by pharmaceutical companies suddenly started to become very different. Um, right at the beginning of the decade, the first um, digital um, prescription product was approved um, by the FDA. It was uh, to be used with um, an actual pharmaceutical product, not on its own. Um, but that was the start. Then we saw the first cell therapy. Then we saw the first gene therapy. Um, then we saw um, standalone prescription digital um, medicines. And then we saw um, interesting developments of repurposing um, older substances in the um, psychiatric um, area of um, medicine. 
So we were already entering the 2020s um, with a wider range of types of innovative launch than had been seen in the entire century um, and uh, of, of previous um, pharmaceutical industry development, when essentially um, for all the advances in treatment, there were basically two types of product. It was small molecule or biologic. Um, as we're getting more and more to the fundamental insight into what really drives human disease, um, we're getting um, this opening out in the types um, of um, products therapeutic that are coming into the market. A lot of them are really challenging um, and the um, pioneer products didn't always um, succeed. But again, what the pharmaceutical industry does is it takes a setback and it goes back and it tries again and it moves medicine forward. Um, and that's, um, I think, the most exciting thing about this industry. Absolutely brilliant. On that optimistic note, I want to thank you, Sarah, for taking the time out of your, no doubt, very busy schedule to speak with me. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. It's been fascinating to not only reflect at recent trends, uh, but also to look forward to the future of healthcare and pharma with such an exciting and fast evolving space. Thank you for joining me again, Sarah, and thank you for listening. And I look forward to welcoming you all back again for next week. Thank you. Thank you.